Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to start off by thanking our sponsor for tonight, Mayor Johnson, your special education and board maker super source. And um, with every child, there is a solution. Explore a variety of educational solutions at mayorjohnson.com. And right now you can get 20% off by using their promo code SOLUTION20. If you don't know who Mayor Johnson is, they are the world's super source. So really go over there. They have a fabulous website, great resources for you. Um, tonight, I am very excited that I have something really a little bit different. This is for all parents, not just special needs parents. And I think we're really going to get something out of it. This is something that in the long run is going to help the children, but I think really it's it's something all of us as parents need to hear. Um, my guest is Richard Melnick, and he was diagnosed with cancer a dozen years ago. And while he was facing this life-threatening illness and what could have been a premature death, he experienced a new way of viewing the world. And he has written a really touching, humorous, and eye-opening book um, called Parents Who Don't Do Dishes. And um, I just want to read you an excerpt from the book. Although, to be sure, I taught them by serving them, in addition to practical skills like cooking and cleaning, they've also learned other life's lessons and discovered that unlike a sink of dirty dishes, there are often no tidy resolutions to many situations. Accordingly, they're able to skillfully handle anything life throws at them and accompanying range of emotions. Emotions. They've learned that expecting life to be free from outside disturbance and internal conflict is a fantasy. They've learned to not play the victim and, for the most part, to participate in life as it is in the moment, whether it's happy, sad, anxious, or whatever. They've become comfortable with the unknown, and they've learned to develop a playful relationship with disturbance. And above all else, my boys have learned the inherent benefit of practicing kindness, no matter what, kindness towards self, and kindness towards others. It's a great book. You're going to love this interview. And Richard asks a question of himself and of you. And I really think that this question just may change your way of viewing the world. The question is, what am I afraid of now in this moment? So let me introduce Richard Melman. Thank you for joining me. Well, Marianne, thank you for having me on your show. And to all your listeners, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. It's uh, privilege. Well, I'm so happy you're here because, you know, when I read the book, you know, when when I first saw the book and um, uh, I guess your um, your publicist sent me a copy, I was like, oh, you know, this looks like a great book. And then I read it and I said, you know, wow, if, when I really think about the emotion that cripples us the most, um, special needs parent or any parent, I, I think it's fear. And, you know, fear is just such a powerful emotion. It's fear, you know, in your case of an untimely death that, you know, affected your parenting style. And I know for many, and I know for myself, that fear is the emotion that keeps us in the past. And it keeps, for me, afraid of the future. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your story and um, how you learned to deal with your fear. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Um, 
Well, the title of my book came uh, as a result of a heated conversation that I had with uh, one of your most ardent fans, a woman named Robin Cox, and she's the mother of twin 10-year-old boys, one of whom uh, had some vision impairment, and so she's been tuning in and getting a lot of great tips from me over the years. Anyway, Robin and I were discussing how to encourage service around the house, manage reactivity, respect individual sovereignty, provide effective consequences, and offer compassion and empathy without needing to fix anything, and also um, certain conscious language skills. And so at some point to get her attention, I, I exclaimed, I'm going to write a book called Parents Who Don't Do Dishes. And eventually Robin had an epiphany that by setting good boundaries for herself and letting life flow without her yelling and cajoling, um, she witnessed what she called what I think is the best line in the book. It's the beauty of the death of control. And so my story in a rough sense, I mean, you touched on it. I was sick 12 years ago. My boys were three and five years old at the time. And so I did feel a sense of urgency to teach them certain life lessons. And I wanted them to participate deeply in the truth of their life because well, my bias is that feeling and life are sort of one and the same. So I wanted them to be willing to feel pain and pleasure in equal measure, and I wanted them to have a strong work ethic to ensure their survival. And so, like you said, I think my my parenting sensibilities were informed somewhat by being afraid of not being around. And so I guess to answer your question about fear itself, what I kept circling back to when I was sick, because the, the permutations of painful outcomes were way beyond my grasp. Who would raise my kids and how would they get you know, how would my ex-wife pay for them, et cetera. And so I just kept circling back to this question, what am I afraid of right now? And the answer was always the same, I was, uh, nothing. And so I guess what I learned was to practice pretty radical immediacy because my future was uncertain and it didn't make any sense to stay, you know, th thinking about the past. And so what I just did simply was just try to notice when my mind would be uh, focusing on some fear of the future and then just remind myself kindly, hey, that's a projection into the future. It's not real now. And just keep circling back to these, the same question, what am I afraid of now? And in the end, the answer was always nothing because I was alive. And what I found was that maybe gratitude was the most effective uh, ingredient for healing. And certainly it's the most effective emotion to bring peace into the moment and so you know maybe it applies if you have a special needs kid situation and um you just practice radical acceptance and you know all the all the stuff i offer in in the book it's not very original thinking um but it's presented in a way that i think is accessible and um hopefully will be of benefit to readers yeah well you know it, it's written the underlying message through the book for me um and i don't know if this is what you had intended was kindness um because it's really being kind to yourself because what i got out of this book was that you can quell your anxiety and stress of the past and you can try to block your fear of the future if you live in the present and you know i think that you know i know for, for me and for you know a lot of parents you, you try to go to sleep at night, you lay down, everything's fine, you're exhausted, and all of a sudden all of these fears of what could happen, you know, come into your head. And, you know, these things usually don't happen, but you can't stop these thoughts. So I'm really interested in trying to do this. 
um, you know, because you said that your answer was always nothing. So how do you do that? You just well, say, okay, you, I you, can't you, change you, things? That's exactly right. And so if you have a repetitive story going in your head, um, my my training, and I had a great teacher. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I've had several great teachers, in fact. And so what I've been taught to, to do is to look for some disowned aspect of myself or some avoided feeling. If I have a repetitive story going in my head while I'm laying in bed in the middle of the night and I'm afraid of this happening or that not happening, instead what I've been taught to do, and I think it works, is to let go of the story and go to the raw fear or the raw vulnerability. It could be fear, it could be anger, it could be sadness, it could be you know, even joy. I think we, you know, mm-hmm. we avoid that too to, to some measure. But so the practice is to just give yourself permission to feel the dreaded emotional display and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to let go of the story, and for 60 seconds I'm going to be the most fearful person that's ever lived. I'm just going to feel raw fear right now. And, and it's hard because typically you burst out laughing because if you let go of the story, then all you're left is just this emotional display that just sort of transmutes of its own weight. And um, it becomes humorous, is my experience. And, you know, and then, of course, you might imagine... have to surf... Pardon me? Uh, no, go ahead. No, and then I was going to say, and then, of course, you know, the same repetitive thoughts will come back in, you know, five minutes or whenever, and then you just circle back to the practice of giving yourself permission to feel the dreaded emotional display and and lather, rinse, and repeat. And it seems to work. And it's one of my teachers told me that it's sort of like having a row of dominoes. If you, if you um, tap one, they'll all fall down. But if you spread the dominoes out, you can knock one down here and knock one down there, and then you have all these other domino standings. And so I guess there's a sense of spaciousness that happens if you let go of the story and go to the raw feeling. And you find that's that a great, oh, there's, there's yeah, that's peace a great right analogy. afterwards. Yeah. I mean, teaching yourself this is amazing, but I would imagine that being able to teach this to kids is such a gift that they're, they're going to have for the rest of their lives. I mean, just, you know, any time that you can, um, you know, teach calm. It's, it's an, I always say that parents worry so much about, um, you know, making kids happy, they forget how to teach them how to be calm. Um, and that's really the you know the best thing you can give them. And you know you write about differentiating between thinking and feeling, and you were just touching upon that. And it reminds me a little bit of mindfulness. So, what is the difference um, that you talk about in this book between thinking and feeling, and how does it teach kids to feel and express happiness and pain, or you will any emotion? Well, um, I think that our thoughts. Well, can I read from the book? For a minute? Sure. Would that be okay? Okay. Um, there was a peaceful, there was one particular day when I had just finished chemotherapy and we were sitting by the lake and the boys were three and five years old and I was especially grateful to be alive. And, you know, I remember telling them that feeling the truth of your being at any given moment is the doorway to experiencing deep aliveness. And I believe that you have a soul that doesn't die when your body is gone and essentially death is an illusion. And so... I'm not reading from the book right now, but I thought that it was helpful for them to have this perspective as a way to free them up to feeling with uh, more equanimity or feeling, uh, be willing to feel pain and pleasure, both. And so 
I told them that we could even send love to their grandpa, Phil, who had recently died, and that he could feel it right now. And so we were sitting by the lake, and it seemed to ring true for them. And, and so we practiced sending love to Grandpa Phil, and the look on their face was just pure rapture. And so they seemed to get the sense that, well, maybe it's possible that death is an illusion, that really, it really rang true for them. And so I also suggested that, again, on the thinking and feeling business, that thinking uh, is, a, unlike feelings, thinking is... Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's rooted in the past or the future and it wants to label the present as good or bad or it wants to tell a story about the past or the future and um, I quote one of my favorite country western songs uh, in the book and it's uh, the lyric and the title of the song is My Mind Has a Mind of Its Own and I think it's so true so I, I suggested that Unlike thinking, feelings are a full-body sensation and not inherently harmful. Feelings come and go if they aren't resisted. And so I asked them to notice how the voice in their head is different than when they hug a puppy or cry uncontrollably or send love to their departed grandpa, Phil. There's no voice in your head at those moments, I told them, just peace, love, joy, sorrow, or whatever feeling the moment might bring. And so as opposed to thinking, feeling represents your deepest experience of being alive. And so we reasoned, if your soul doesn't die and a feeling and life are sort of one and the same, then what's the big deal about also feeling some discomfort? It's not going to kill you. Why not say yes to life in all its forms? And I told him, if you avoid your feelings, you'll become at war with yourself, afraid of your shadow and afraid of pleasure too. And then in the book I quote another uh, Bob Dylan lyric, which is just brilliant. Uh, he, said, he wrote, it frightens me the awful truth of how sweet life can be. And... Uh, yeah, essentially, I, I just keep hammering back at this point that you just can't selectively feel the fun stuff and push away the f painful feelings because the system doesn't work like that. And I, I quote uh, one of my teachers, Eva Paracos. She wrote a great book called Guide Lectures for Self-Transformation that I, wrote, I read uh, 30 years ago. And she said that the degree to which you're willing to feel pain is in direct proportion to your ability to feel pleasure. And... Um, yeah, and that's, that's this, true. Yeah, yeah and I, this, the lesson was seared into my own soul by a dog named Jim, and if you'd like, I can read you that quick story about him. Sure. Okay. Yeah, well, that was yeah, that was sweet. Uh, I got Jimmy when I was 29 years old, a, a few months after my best friend died in a skiing accident. And Jimmy was a shepherd mix, a savvy stray that looked both ways before crossing the street, and he always had a gaggle of new friends around him. To say that we were inseparable is an epic understatement. Even a trip to the dry cleaner might give rise to feelings of separation and anxiety. After seven years together, we had knee surgery the same week. Three years after that, he came down with lung cancer a month after I got my cancer diagnosis. And I wonder if Jimmy somehow sucked the disease out of me so that I might live. When it came time to lay him to rest, I was three months into chemotherapy and digging his grave in the backyard of our home in Boulder. Pick and shovel, sweat and tears, Nancy Griffith's Great Divide played on the patio speakers as Jim sat on the grass watching me, a knowing look in his eyes. Our time had come. A few hours later, the digging done, the vet came and Jim had a final bowl of chocolate ice cream, a last hug and scratch of his ears. The feelings I had while tossing dirt on my dear sweet friend's grave that evening ranged from anguish to surprising joy at having known such tender and unconditional love. I had never experienced such pain, sorrow, and inexplicable happiness. I cried for myself, 
I wailed for Jimmy and for a thousand lifetimes of welled-up grief, and by doing so, I felt deeply alive. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it's, it's, it is such a touching story in the book because it's true. You know, it's like if you can really just deal with the emotions, and like you said, you have to feel. You know, you have to feel whatever you're feeling. Um, you know, and and the book also has a lot of... Um, that you write a lot about um, different things you went through with your, your two sons. And one of my favorite chapters um, was about the sibling rivalry. I mean, this is like parenting 101, and I just loved it. Um, because, you you know, your kids were fighting like kids do, and, you know, you just stopped and you, you posed a question to your fighting sons, and you said, exactly how is it to your benefit for your brother to think that you're an a-hole? And I, I just had a laugh because yeah. I, it's so true. You know, what good can come of this? Um, yeah. You know, when you talk about, you know, you have to teach kids to evaluate the truth of the matter. So, you know, what is your take on this, you know, dealing with kids with sibling rivalry? Well, um, I asked my boys to embrace their feelings, and I also asked them to learn to take responsibility for how they feel. And I guess... The point is is to just be aware of what's real now, and um yeah, I asked that question to them uh how could it possibly be to your benefit for your brother to have a festering, brooding resentment towards you? How could it possibly be to your benefit for him to think you're a total a hole and so that was sort of a jumping off point into an ongoing conversation that we, we had earlier, but I definitely remember distinctly that one day that they were probably six and ten the last time we ever had to have the conversation. And so I I basically asked them to let go of their need to be right and to be heard and to be understood and to stop imagining themselves as a victim and to stop being a victimizer. I told them that you can't be one without also being the other, and this is just the energetic fact of the matter. Um, and then I also include a, a story that my friend Jordan, who's a child psychologist, uh, tells. And uh, it's not so much a story; it's just a little bit of wisdom. And she says that managing your reactivity is your responsibility. It's exercising your ability to respond. She says, I don't have to do the same thing over and over. I don't have to close my eyes in fear when the baseball comes. I can learn to respond differently to keep my eyes open, step aside, and clunk. The ball lands in my mitt. And so while I ask the kids to be willing to feel and participate deeply in the truth of their lives, I also wanted them to learn how to navigate their reactivity and become skillful with all that. And so it starts by um, being kind to your brother. Yeah, and, you know, it also goes on to talk about exploring vulnerability. And, I mean, that is hard. That is really hard. That's hard for an adult to do. Um, so, you know, having your kids have to face what they're, you know, they pretty much most fear, whether it's an embarrassing situation with a girl they like at school or whether it's really a more deep-rooted fear, um, you know, you say that that's an important part of the process of them being able to live in the present. Well... It is, it's true. I wanted my kids to participate deeply in whatever it was that they feel. And my, my, my feeling and my training is that being authentic connects you to the moment. And being vulnerable is, is your deepest truth. 
And so why not go ahead and share that with the world? As long as you're not, you know, expecting somebody else to make you happy or blame somebody else for the way you feel. And, yeah, I, I talk about a story um, where my 17-year-old had, a, he had to write an essay for uh, a college application on doing something challenging. And so he had talked about oh, hiking up the mountain that shadows our town and skiing down in the moonlight. And, and instead I asked him to explore his vulnerability and act on the truth of how you feel when it's scary, raw, and naked. And I told him that's, that's true strength. And so in one of the vignettes that I relate in the story, I, I, uh, I knew there was a woman, and I, I can't call her a girl because she's 10 years older than Jackson, my, my eldest, uh, I knew there was a girl that he had a mad crush on, and I suggested that he tell her. And so I asked him to let go of control and embrace how you feel without expectation and see where the day takes you. You might be pleasantly surprised or deeply disappointed, but you'll know true strength and tenderness for self, and this is the way the ancient heroes, I, I told them. And so, um, terrified, he, he took my advice, and he wrote this uh woman a song and uh, he fixed her a fancy lunch and uh, they've continued to develop a sweet and tender friendship um, I could yeah, read I, I'm sorry go I, ahead. I think what happens is people are so afraid of other people's reactions which is just you know human nature um, you know that they, they don't that like you said they, they don't face their vulnerability and they, they really just always live wondering so you know, that's a great thing. And, you know, the analogy with the baseball was fantastic, too, because it's true, you know, you you do you are able to desensitize yourself. Um, you know, and I think that's where also a lot of the, the messages you give in the book um, really come to fruition when you start talking about the helicopter parenting and the micromanaging and projecting, you know, us, our, ours as parents, you know, our pain and anxieties, and we do we put it on our kids. And, you know, this is a really important one. This one took me a very long time myself um, to get. But, you know, I think that for some reason our generation really smothers our kids. And we, we try to shield them from everything. And in this book, basically, you know, I felt that you, would, you were telling us to do the opposite, to have them unmask themselves. Well, yeah, I I do think that's a good idea, and it's the parents that need to unmask in this instant instance because I think that the parents have their ego attached in some cases to well the kids need to look like this or they need to think that, and I think that micromanaging your kid is a is a huge spiritual, emotional, and practical mistake, and. Um, I have a chapter titled, um, well, I can't say it on the air because it includes a naughty word, but it it sounds similar to shut the heck up. Right. It's a very good chapter. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if you'd like, I could read a couple paragraphs from it. Definitely. And you know, really... the other nice thing about this book is that there's co-parenting because you have a fantastic relationship with your ex-wife. And, you know, well, I think that... The... <laughs> <laughs> I'm hey, listen. I, I present an idealized version of life in this book. I mean, let me, let's be fair. 
and I have a fantastic relationship with my kids, and I have a marvelous relationship with my ex-wife, and it's all true to a degree, but let's be honest. Listen, I, I, I hear the horror stories, <laughs> you know, Fair from enough. parents. So, you know, I mean, it's it's. Listen, I, I was divorced, and... You know, just because I didn't want to live with him, I had to understand that, you know, my, my daughter still loved him dearly. And, you know, when you can get past that and when you can look at other people in the, you know, in their lives when they move on, it's just somebody else to love them. And exactly. co-parenting is a really important thing for people to understand. And, you know, you, you got to that point from your circumstances. I got to that point from mine. But, um, you know, this book also is good for, for parents that are divorced. You have some chapters. Um, that are in there about that as well. But you were going to read us a little something. I will. I was going to read you a little something from Shut the Heck Up, and then I'll tell you more about... Um, He's cleaning that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shut the Heck Up. Okay. You go the extra mile because it makes you feel needed somehow or perhaps because it speaks to your, your identity as a good parent. Obviously, you provide for your kids because you love and care for them, but every day with your kids can also be a day to teach them independence and offer them the freedom to grow to be creative, and learn to take responsibility for their own life. Your family is a laboratory. Feel free to experiment, and you may want to start by considering what kind of behavior you're modeling and what kind of creatures are currently growing in the Petri dish you call home. If you teach kids to listen to themselves in real time and make decisions on their own, whatever their situation may be, then I think you've done your job as a parent. By coddling or micromanaging your kids, you may be feeding your own ego, energizing your fears, and actually preventing your kids from becoming self-actualized and independent beings. By being over-involved, you undermine their confidence and limit their potential for happiness and success. You may be caught up in a neurotic web of codependency, perhaps not unlike the dysfunction many experience with their spouse or significant other. Why not let go of, I'm sorry, why not let go of worrying about what your kid needs next? You're not ultimately in control anyway. As I told Robin that morning, the future will take care of itself in the most delightful ways, think the sound of music, if you can learn to simply let go of your agenda and shut the heck up. Sorry, but that's what it took sorry, but that's what it took for Robin to hear me. I also told her that her kids often experienced her as oh, here's another bad word. Uh, due to her nagging and asked how that could uh how that could possibly be to her benefit. And I don't normally speak like that, and I said it to her most unexpectedly and quite cheerfully. I said it for shock value and to add emphasis to my petition. Robin was rightly offended, but it was shortly thereafter that she had her epiphany. And so I agonized over including this phrase, as I know it will offend some kindly readers, though it seems to me that it's only this kind of vulgarity that adequately speaks to the obscene practice of bossing your kid around as if you know what your kid needs to do or think. And if you don't see any wisdom in my salty suggestion, then like my dear sweet friend Robin, that section was written justly for you. And then I go on to give an example of myself and when I could have uh, taken that advice. Um, when my youngest was between the ages of 10 and 13, he gained a lot of extra weight, and I had the same experience when I was about that age, and, and I was pretty unhappy, and I projected my experience onto him, and you know, I badgered him to eat healthy, and I might give him a questioning look if he wanted dessert, and he just thought I was, uh, well, I can't say the words, but he was not impressed with my parenting style in those instances. And I couldn't control myself. I even explained to him, um, you know, how it was such a charged issue for me, but it was just no excuse at all for my boorish behavior. And so I think as parents, 
we can we can do well to learn to shut the heck up and to learn to manage our reactivity and look for the vulnerability that we're avoiding by complaining and controlling. And so this is one of the central skills of the book is to learn to manage your your reactivity and then respect your kids' sovereignty as well. And so give them all of the independence um, that they can handle and challenge your own sensibilities as far as um, what sort of independence is appropriate for them. And, you know, maybe, you know, I'm just a guy. I don't have a fancy education. I just happen to write a book, but I'm no expert. And, and so I certainly am no expert in special needs kids. But, you know, maybe it's possible to push the boundaries a bit on recognizing your kid's sovereignty. I think it goes a long way towards teaching them to be independent and actualized. And then I guess you know, I'm switching subjects here for a second, but the grand bargain that I outline in the book is in exchange for having kids' sovereignty recognized that they they can offer some tribute in exchange and participate in the household and i.e. you know let's do some dishes and fold some laundry and you know whatever it is that you want to have done and so that's the yeah, whole you know and that's interesting in the book when you when you talk about that um, because you know it's true how something that can be such a negative and that you know kids can give you such a hard time with. Um, you know, can really be um, a moment for a family. And, you know, I think going back to what you were just saying, you know, the conditioning, um, um, we're about to go off live because we're running over, but you can listen to this um, in archive. It'll be in its entirety. But, um, you know, the conditioning, I think, is a big part of it, that we're all conditioned by our upbringing. And, um, you know, we're also, you know, we don't want our kids to feel the pain of things we we went through. So when we see them going through the same things, you know, we, we jump to yeah. um, react, and we shouldn't react. You know, that's the problem. I just did a show not too long ago, um, you know, Expectations, Who Are They For? And it was really, um, you know, with Dr. Lynn Kenny, and we really just spoke about, you know, when, when you're dealing with your child, when you're making decisions for your child, when you're helping them through a hard time, you really need to you just sit back and think, you know, what are you basing these decisions on? Because that's what it really comes down to, other people's, you know, expectations. But, um you know, you talk about something that I talk about all the time, and we we use different phrasing. You talk about conscious language and mind chatter. You know, I call it, I've written several blogs about it, um, the language of positives. And it absolutely changes the reaction that you will get from your child. So, I mean, it works. So tell us about, um, you know, what you refer to as conscious language and, you know, how mind chatter um, changes the present. Okay, Um Conscious language is uh, it's super empowering, and it's a way of recognizing your kid's sovereignty. And so I always want my kids to make as many decisions for themselves on their own as possible. And so accordingly, there's certain words that I just don't use. And um, two of the most important ones that I banish from my vocabulary are should and need. And so I just don't tell them, well, you should do this or you need to do that. I might frame it as a question and say, um, do you mind if I give you my opinion on whatever the topic might be? And if they say yes, then I'll go ahead and say, well, I think it might be to your benefit to, and then whatever it is my suggestion is, as opposed to, oh, well, you need to do this or you should do that, because those words are aggressive energetically, and they're sure to provoke resistance. And so 
And even when you're talking about yourself, if you use the words need and should, they definitely um, create a sense of disempowerment, like, oh, I need to quit smoking or I should study. Um, those, you know, it, 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 there's an inherent sense of victimhood in, in that sort of language. So I just don't use need and should. There's a few others that I'm careful with, um, but that tends to dismiss whatever came before it, uh, if you think about it. So, you know, rather than saying, oh, I... Um, uh, you did a great job sweeping, but you forgot to blah, blah, blah. Um, I would say you did a nice job sweeping and you forgot to get the corners. Um, it's subtle, but I think that if you think about it, you'll find that but definitely tends to dismiss what came before it. Um, words like always and never, those are you know, absolutes, and they're rarely accurate, and they're typically going to provoke mm-hmm. resistance if you're talking about somebody right. else. And then the main event, really, is the word you. I find that if you substitute I for you in your head before you finish the sentence, or start the sentence even better, right. If, you, right. If, you, if you substitute I for you, then I think you're going to get a clear picture of how your message is going to be received. And, and, and that works like for relationships, it, too. Oh, yeah, everybody. Even when when, like I'm, when, I'm, when I'm heated with my husband, I don't, do, I don't say you, because I know right yeah. away the wall's going up. Yeah, <laughs> you know? talk about I think, yourself. I, yeah, I, I love right. it when you do the dishes. I love I it right. when you pick up the house, whatever <laughs> it might be. And it just it has a completely different tenor when you talk about your own feelings as opposed to what you should do or you need to do or any of that sort of thing. Because really, so, there's anything that, that you can say negative that you can say positive. Um, like if with a kid, let's just say, I don't know, um, you know, you say to them, okay, you know, I mean, they, they, you want them to clean their room. So you could say, if you don't clean your room, you can't go to the movies on Saturday. Or you can say, um, you know, if you clean your room now, you know, I know you have plans to go to the movie, so you won't have to worry about it. It, it changes the whole tone, you know. Um, it takes all the negatives away from it. So, you know, that's, it's important that you just speak in positives. But, right, um, and you could even take it a step further, and you could just say, I love it when you clean your room. And maybe that's right. not enough to have any resonance with them, and you have to move on to the boundaries. But I find right. giving them... Uh, you know, keeping a good boundary around what works for you and sticking with it, that seems to make all the difference. Now, Marion, how many kids do you have? Um, we have three. You have three. Mm-hmm. And how old are they? I have um, 17, 18, and 27. Well, <laughs> congratulations. All girls. <laughs> oh, well... There should be a special yeah. disclaimer in my book that I know absolutely nothing about girls. I have yeah, well, it's 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 a trip, that's for sure. Um, I'm sorry. You know, and and you know, I know that when um, you had sent me, um, uh, we were corresponding during the week, and you know, I, I forget what it was that you asked me, but you you know had you wanted to ask me, you know, what I got out of the book, and um, you know. As painful as your experience was, um, you know, having to go through cancer and chemo and fearing um, for your life, it turned out to be a gift for you. And um, for me, you know, I lost, we, my husband and I lost a child seven years ago in a car accident. Oh, my. And as absolutely devastating as that was, 
as painful a moment anybody could ever face. It changed the way I parented. It changed the way I looked at the world. Um, And it's sometimes, I mean, for you and I, we had life-jolting experiences Mm -hmm. that opened our eyes to parenting differently and parenting with kindness and appreciation. Um, But it doesn't have to be so jolting for parents to to get this, which is why I also think I had such a strong connection to the book because that's really what I I felt, too, was that, you know, I felt like this um, connection because we both changed our view of things through something horrible. But, you know, other parents don't have to experience that to see this. Well, that would be great. And hopefully from your story and from my story that people can find a way to be uh, radically grateful for what for for the moment and for and, everything you know, and they you, have you now. just exactly and you know you you're a very peaceful man a man of kindness i mean i know that in the book you speak that you you know were privileged to meet with the dalai lama um so you know you you have a, a lot of um calm i think to share and i just had a, a question just a personal question that i wanted to ask you which was do you think that um your attitude and your being so grounded um you know, do you think that that towards your cancer, your life, and your living in the present changed the outcome of your illness? I know that you had said that you know you felt like with your dog um, somehow was taking on some of that for you. But do you think that your attitude may have had contributed to your thank God being here? Well, that's an excellent question, and of course, I have absolutely no way of knowing the answer to that. And um, probably it did because I I did take it one day at a time and you know I do suspect that gratitude is an essential ingredient for healing and I did learn to celebrate what was happening now mm-hmm. and even I found that even an amazing display of pain was sacred and was you know, worthy of my fascination and so yeah I, you know these horrible or, or challenging life experiences can definitely cause us to participate more radically. Moment to yeah, moment you know, moment. I think that um, as as a person, you just grow you just grow more from pain um, than anything else. You know, I don't know why it, it is that way, but it just seems to be that way. But I mean, this book isn't. Um, this is a funny book. Um, it's really very humorous. You also have some recipes in here. Um, you know, it, it is um, weaved into the book. Um, so where can people find the book, and what is your website? Um, people can find the book at parentswhodontdodishes.com. Um, you can also buy the book uh, on Amazon or in Kindle version as well, or you can buy it directly from Amazon in paperback. And you can like the book on Facebook if you're curious about any dialogue that's going on. And uh, and yeah, and there's some recipes uh, towards the end as well. I have a big love for cooking, and I thought it'd be fun to to share it that. Is, it was very cute. Yeah, it was. It was cute and how you weaved it into there. Well, I thank you for joining me. I hope that um, you know that the, the listeners will take listen to what you said, give it some thought, read the book, and you'll get a much better idea of you know how to um, distinguish your thinking and your feeling and how to relay this to your kids. So, uh, Richard, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Marianne, thank you again for having me on your show, and best wishes to you and all your listeners. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, 
As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. And I just want to say that I am just thrilled that um, Dr. Richard Selznick, the author of School Struggles, the author of um, The Shutdown Learner, is my new host on the network. Um, He's going to be here. He's going to start once a month. And he is going to bring you incredible, incredible guests um, that are going to help you with your struggling learner. Ariva Martin, you know her as TV personality and um, legal correspondent on CNN, Fox. She's another one of my new hosts, and she's going to be coming on discussing current events. Um, Blockbuster, Blockbuster show Wednesday night. Bright Not Broken with Diane Kennedy and Rebecca Bank uh, talking about your twice exceptional gift to children um, here Sunday night. And um, I'm just thrilled to let you know that we are going to be featuring the doctors from Child Mind Institute. And um, we have two months' worth of specials, and we're going to be discussing all of these children's issues that have mental illness and related disorders. So join us here at the Coffee Clatch. Thank you for joining us. Marianne? There you go. There you go. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.